Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. This is a podcast from the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care, and I'm very excited about today's episode because it's going to be talking about a future project that TIPQC is going to be rolling out across the state in March of 2022. And today's guest is Howard Harrell. He's an obstetrician and is also the obstetrical state lead on this project. So today, Howard and I are going to sit down, talk about this project, help you learn about what optimal cord clamping is, because that's what the project is all about, is how we can increase the optimal or delayed cord clamping rates across Tennessee. We're going to learn about what obstetricians and pregnant women need to know about this and how we can implement this into our practice. Howard, you want to say hello to everybody, and then I'll give you an introduction. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. And you say I'm the state OB lead, and I still don't know quite how that happened, but I'm happy to be there. We wanted somebody that was perfect for this, and you're the absolute perfect person for this. And I'm going to tell our audience why you're exactly the perfect person, Howard, and that's because of what you've been doing for over a decade now. Howard is an obstetrician and gynecologist in Greenville, Tennessee. He's one of those unique people who's worked in the tertiary academic centers, and he's worked in the rural access hospitals around the state. He's delivered over 4,000 babies, and he is the vice chair of the Tennessee chapter of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the state legislative chair for the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. He also runs his own bi-weekly podcast with another colleague, Antonia Roberts. This is called thinking about OBGYN. And they do what, Howard? You think about OBGYN in this podcast, right? We think a lot. Yeah. We try to be entertaining, but we think mostly. Yeah. And we'll be linking to his podcast in our show notes. Howard also has a popular blog called Howardisms.com. And one of the things I'm really interested in is this second book that you have coming out. You're quite a writer. And this is, again, is why I think that you're absolutely perfect to be our state lead. This book is titled Clinical Reasoning, How Doctors Should Think. And uh, my understanding is that it explores evidence-based medicine, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today, evidence-based medicine, and how we actually put things into practice that we know we need to do. Can you tell our audience a little bit about this book and about what evidence-based medicine is? Yeah, evidence-based medicine is what you and I are both here for because that's where obviously we use the collective knowledge of a lot of physicians and clinical studies to try to give the best outcomes to our patients. And unfortunately, it seems like even with where we're at with the progress of science and medicine, we still tend to refer back to what we're used to and how we were trained maybe five years ago, maybe 15 years ago. The book is a deep dive into 
how to apply an evidence-based approach from, honestly, from everything from taking a history and making an accurate diagnosis to reading the literature and fully implementing evidence into what we do and how we practice. So uh, there's some math chapters in there that people can skip if they want, but unfortunately, math and statistics and interpretation of literature and evidence is essential to what we do and essential to inform even our conversation today. Yeah, you and I had a conversation on the phone a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this project and we were talking about implementation science a bit. And I can't remember if it was you or if it was me that talked about the statement that it takes 17 years before something that we know we need to do actually gets implemented into practice. Yeah, and that's an old that's an old stat actually. I wonder if it's even true, but the problem with that 17 year stat, which is based upon a study, is that 17 years is an eternity in new medical evidence. So unfortunately, I think what really happens is we never fully implement an evidence-based guideline before we've moved on to the next round of implementation. People are stuck in different sort of strata of how they trained and when they graduated, and we don't always do a good job of looking at new evidence and, and integrating it into our practice. And I think that optimal cord clamping obviously is a great example of that, where from my professional society's perspective, it's been, I think, December 2016 since they released a statement to the press saying that we were endorsing this full heartedly and what we call practice bulletin in 2017. Yet, as we'll discuss, it's nowhere near fully implemented in the state of Tennessee. And, and of course, obstetricians are the ones there at the point of care making that decision almost always about whether or not infants received optimal cord clamping. Before we jump into the optimal cord clamping, let's go back to the 17-year thing. I was had a conversation with somebody about two weeks ago, and his explanation for the 17 years and why it takes so long to actually change is that it takes a whole generation of physicians either die out or retire. And for that next generation to take the lead, and I was like, wow, that's an interesting take on that. That sounds like something I might have said. But yeah, there's actually a chapter in the book that looks at some of the cognitive reasons and biases. And, you know, I think it's a combination of inertia and comfort level. When you get about five years out of fellowship or practice or residency into practice, you finally are kind of comfortable. Things are going well. You understand where the bathroom is and how to do your job. And it's challenging to read a journal article or read something and then go in and make a change to what you do, unless really that's the attitude you live by. And it's a lot of work to read new literature. So I think complacency and inertia and not wanting to be the first to change in your environment, particularly when you're a younger faculty member, you don't want to be going against senior faculty and senior faculty have less angst to be up to date and change sometimes, unfortunately. So I think it's a combination of lots of things. That's where TIPQC can help and step in because we can look at the evidence. We can look at the recommendations from uh, these organizations that say, hey, you know, we need to be doing this. And then we can say, let's implement this. Let's figure out how to do this around the state to begin to improve the quality of care that our mothers and babies in the state of Tennessee deserve. And that takes us back to optimal cord clamping. I've mentioned this phrase already a couple of times in Howard Can you tell our listeners what this means exactly? What is optimal cord clamping? I think it's a great example of where words really matter because I think most listeners will be more familiar with the term delayed cord clamping. And of course, delayed implies that we're doing something not the norm. 
that were for some reason veering off that instantaneous cord clamping must be the norm. It seems that way. So I think optimal cord clamping is a wonderful expression that does not imply anything good or bad about when the cord is clamped. If the optimal management of the umbilical cord was to cut it at five seconds, that would be optimal. And if it was at four minutes, that would be optimal. So it asks the question then, what's the optimal time to separate the baby from the placenta? What's the optimal time to cut the cord without showing favoritism to early, late, delayed, whatever those terms mean? So I think for the purposes of our conversation, optimal cord management based upon the current medical evidence is when we don't separate the baby from the placenta for at least 60 seconds. And it could be longer than that. Now, delayed cord clamping, as defined in some of our professional societies and and journal articles that you'll see, it'll sometimes say 30 to 60 seconds, things like that. And there's reasons why this has evolved over time. But I think when we say the phrase optimal cord clamping, we mean to say, what does the current best evidence say is the ideal time to maximize maternal and fetal benefit? And so for the purposes of our conversation today, that's at least 60 seconds. Is there a difference maybe between term babies and preterm babies and those very, very preterm babies and what we might need to be targeting? Is there a difference in the optimal management or the optimal time? I guess the answer to that is no. 60 seconds is our goal for all of those babies. But as we'll discuss, what has been an issue in the past is a concern about when we get into neonatal resuscitation, what we do with very small babies, how soon do we want to give them off to our neonatology or pediatric colleagues to take care of these babies. When you're dealing with a 24-weeker or a 27-weeker or something like a 23-weeker, boy, it doesn't necessarily feel right to sit there and not clamp the cord for 60 seconds. But no, there's not a difference. And those newborns that are most at risk sometimes, the ones that that need resuscitation, I think what we forget sometimes is that the placenta is still providing oxygenated blood to the fetus during that time, as long as the placenta is still intact, you know, attached to the maternal interface. And so we're actually depriving those most vulnerable babies that we're most worried about of oxygenated blood when they perhaps are not respirating on their own. Yeah, that's great. That leads to my next question. Can you describe just briefly for our listeners physiologically what is happening when we target optimal cord management and allow the placenta to give that baby that extra blood? Well, we've known for a long time that in that additional, and people debated about how long it takes and whether it's related to when, if there's a physiologic mechanism related to when the baby first inspires of of when this happens. But in that first minute or so after at least in in term infants, this is the numbers will be different for preterm babies, but just a matter of scale. But in term babies, about 80 milliliters of blood up to 100 milliliters of blood at three minutes, but 80 milliliters at one minute of extra oxygenated warm blood will enter into the fetal circulation. There actually is a relationship to the giving the baby time to inspire. So it's thought that the negative intrathoracic pressure generated by the initial first few lung inflations actually helps create the physiologic situation where you get that extra transfer of blood. And that 80 milliliters of blood at one minute versus 100 at three minutes, that gets into some of the physiologic reasons, probably why 60 seconds is optimal. 
Whereas why not two minutes or three minutes? Well, there's a diminishing return and there are other considerations. And a lot of times, frankly, my term healthy crying babies are setting up on the mom skin to skin. And if it takes me two or three minutes to get the cord clamped, I'm not in a hurry about it. But that minimum amount of getting that 80 or so milliliters on average transfused after the baby has inspired and created the physiologic conditions that help get that, that's going to lead to extra iron stores that limit the amounts of iron deficiency anemia in the first year of life, higher hematocrits, things like that. And those things, as as you well know, are related to long-term outcomes for newborns, intellectual outcomes, lots of different things from the pediatric side that pediatricians should be excited about. So it's about getting that blood volume that is optimal to the baby. And that takes 60 seconds. Are there organizations that have come out strongly to support this? Yeah, well, as I said, ACOG in 2016, they did at least a press release after a lot of the literature has matured in this area. Now, this is not new. You and I have both taken deep dives into the history of some of this literature, so this is by no means new. But in 2016 and then in January of 2017, as I said, ACOG released a technical bulletin stating that 30 to 60 seconds was uh, something that they endorsed. Now, that 30 to 60 seconds, we can talk about maybe some of the reasons why that happened, but they definitely reviewed the literature and agreed with everything we said so far. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, your professional, or one of your professional societies, has for a, a while now recommended also 30 to 60 seconds. And they say in vigorous term and vigorous preterm infants. So we can talk about what that means. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Canadian Society as well have recommended it. The Royal College actually recommends two minutes in term and preterm infants. And then, of course, the American College of Nurse Midwives recommends two to five minutes. And I think the biggest organization, the World Health Organization, recommends 60 seconds, as we're recommending here today. So all of them recommend at least 30 to 60, and most recommend 60 or more. Yeah, when we've got some of our professional organizations recommending something, we probably should pay attention to it, shouldn't we? Absolutely. So one of the things people may wonder especially our obstetrical care providers that are listening to this, is there any potential risk to the mother when we're talking about doing this procedure? Well, of course. So obstetricians, of course, we're going to be worried about management of the third stage of labor, which was the time after the delivery of the baby until delivery of the placenta. And of course, one of the things we're most worried about are things like postpartum hemorrhage, excessive maternal fetal blood exchange, how that might affect RH sensitization or or things like that. But honestly, the big thing for the mother, at least, is whether or not there's going to be excessive blood loss for the mother. And would that increase the risk for transfusion or other issues for her? And again, this has been well studied based upon the data that we have today. And and there's a review of five trials that included more than 2,200 women. And they found that optimal cord clamping or delayed umbilical cord clamping was not associated with increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage or uh, increased blood loss at delivery or associated with difference in objective postpartum hemoglobin levels or need for blood transfusion in these moms. So the answer essentially is no. Now, in that circumstance, that's in women who have the placenta still attached, which is who we're really talking to. If the placenta is already separated, that may be a different circumstance. But in the vast majority of patients, there doesn't seem to be any decrement in outcomes for the mother. So what about a C-section? Maybe a a woman who's listening is like, you know, I'm scheduled to have a C-section, but this sounds like something I would want my doctor to do. The C-section, I think, is the hardest. It's one of the harder things for OBGYNs. 
because the uterine incision, when you've cut into that, there is a, a lot of potential blood loss going on there. And so we're all just supposed to sit there for a minute and calm down and let it potentially bleed for an extra amount of time. But those studies I mentioned, they include cesareans. Mm -hmm. There's not a significant difference in blood loss. And there are strategies that you can do during that minute. If you have a particularly large vascular bleeder that's pumping, put a clamp on it for 60 seconds. You probably should do that anyway. If it's going to take you three or four minutes to close the incision, then clamping off the really profuse bleeders that are associated with that is probably going to minimize your overall blood loss anyway, rather than let them continue to bleed vigorously for three or four minutes. So no, there are not reasons not to do this just because it's a cesarean section. I, I think we get impatient, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's been my experience in the delivery room too, uh, both from the neonatal provider side and the obstetrical provider side. Are, are there contraindications? Are there things that might be going on with the mother or baby that this is probably not something we want to look at doing? Yeah, and we had a lot of discussion with this uh, as part of preparing this TIPQC project with obstetric and neonatal thought leaders around the state who are participating in the project. And what are the contraindications? I think the contraindications are rare. And obviously, if the cord is no longer attached to the placenta, if it's separated or revulsed or something like that, then we need to get control of that immediately. I think if the placenta is no longer attached to the uterus, then we can't tell you that these benefits, there may be still some volume transfusion, but the idea of continuing to get continuing oxygenated amount of blood transferred is probably lessened, but it's an unclear kind of gray area. And then if the mother needs immediate resuscitation, if there is an absolute emergency that requires complete maternal collapse, I'm thinking about things like amniotic fluid embolism or or things like that, DIC, those sorts of situations. Obviously, if your clinical judgment is, is that it's better to proceed rapidly. I've done perimortem cesareans on car accident patients who have liver lacerations. Uh, if the mother is in that sort of situation and we're moving with lightning speed and use common sense, but there honestly are not really contraindications. And there's, I think, more so just excuses. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's true too. In, in my experience, you alluded to this earlier, cutting the cord immediately hasn't always been the practice in medicine. This is one of those really rather recent things. Tell our audience what you've learned and your deep dive into some of the history of medicine. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Scott, you know that I'm a collector for old uh, obstetric and, and neonatal books and things like that. So I, I thought about just going back and looking, and at least in American textbooks over the last 130 years or so, what was recommended in the chapters on normal deliveries and things like that. So I happen to have a first edition Williams obstetrics. I think I have all of the editions. There's 25 or six of them now. But this is actually what the first edition of Williams obstetrics from 1904 says. And I'll quote, immediately after its birth, the child usually makes an inspiratory movement and then begins to cry. Under such circumstances, it should be placed between the patient's legs in such a manner as to leave the cord lax and thus avoid traction. If, however, the child does not begin to breathe immediately, the cord should be seized and cut between two artery clamps. Then it goes on to say that normally the cord should not be ligated until it ceased to pulsate and goes on to explain some of that. So that's essentially what we're recommending now 100 and 
almost 20 years later, is that if the baby is vigorous, which you can't really determine for 30 seconds, you don't need to decide it's not vigorous in five seconds, then you should have this optimal cord clamping. And if you're 30 seconds and you have a limp, non-breathing baby, that baby needs to be resuscitated. Well, at some point we changed. And also in the history of obstetrics texts in the United States, there's been Computers. So I looked in the the Delee uh, textbook from about a decade later, his first edition, and it says exactly the same thing. In fact, I found out that Delee went on and did a lot of the original research about the exact some of those numbers we quote about how many milliliters. This was stuff that was done in the 1930s. So Delee's textbook also says to wait after quote until after the pulsation and the exposed umbilical cord has perceptibly weakened or disappeared, and then you can proceed with separation. And actually explains how much in this case grams of blood is transferred from the placenta and it says this extra blood the child needs in the first days of life and goes on to explain that in their experience neonatal outcomes were better and that they might occasionally see some icterus. This is 1916. We're rediscovering. Yeah, we're rediscovering things people knew 100 years ago and I think that's just fascinating. We're, we're trying to get people to do I'll give you a couple of more. So the 1950 Williams Obstetrics, this is the 10th edition, also says at, at this time to wait again. It says for one or at least two minutes after the umbilical cord has stopped pulsating or it's waned. And I went all the way up. I'm like, well, what did they say when I was trained in the 1980 and the 2000 editions of Williams Obstetrics, which was the 16th and the 2001 edition was the 21st, which is the one I read when I was a resident. They actually say the same thing. They're 20 years apart, but it actually says the same thing. And it basically says that there are benefits and that and that we should wait at least 30 seconds, which would be how long it takes to do the normal procedures. But they actually say... If after delivery, the infant's placed at or below the level of the vaginal introitus for three minutes and the fetal placental circulation is not immediately occluded, an average of extra 80 milliliters of blood may be shifted from the placenta to the infant. And a benefit of this would be extra iron stores, which reduce the frequency of iron deficiency anemia and pregnancy. This is what the 1980 and 2001 edition says. And it goes on to encourage what we would today call delayed cord clamping. So... I actually had a far, hard time finding where in our practice of obstetrics, this idea of immediately cutting the cord came from. And I think it's just people wanting to get out of there and get done. I, I don't know that this is something we've ever really taught. I think we make excuses. And I can remember when I was a resident, people saying, well, but the baby may have more hyperbilirubinemia. And I can remember saying to somebody, well, they also have that with breastfeeding. So should we not breastfeed? Uh, there's obviously more and more research that's coming out, not just the stuff from 100 years ago where people were doing this. But we've got people now who are doing very eloquent studies saying that this is the right thing to do. I think it's very interesting that the Cochrane Reviews, which is one of those big meta-analysis that looks at all this information, has actually gone on the record to say that this is potentially injurious if we cut the cord early to those preterm babies. And, and it's rare for Cochrane to make a statement like that. But obviously, this is something we need to begin to incorporate into our practice. Why is it so hard to do that? When somebody knows that they need to do something, but to connect the dots and then actually begin to do it, why is that so hard? And what can you tell us about your own practice and how you talk to people about this and what you've learned? Well, I think it's interesting for me that I was doing this long before ACOG finally endorsed it. As you said, the literature was always there. And if you just read the textbook, that's what it said to do. So it was more a question of why are we so quickly cutting the clamp just from a 
natural perspective, which I think birth is a natural process that sometimes goes wrong. And thank goodness when we're there, when it does, animals, mammals are not out there immediately severing the cord. Where'd this come from? And I do think it's just cultural. I was doing this long before ACOG said to do it years before. And the biggest impediment in my early days, and I hear this a lot, was actually you guys. You've told the story about how Virginia Apgar influenced some of our maybe quicker cord clamping because we need to get the baby and assess it. And we need to do all these things. Well, that's even for a vigorous baby or, or let alone a, a baby that is not breathing or is having difficulty or that we've been worried about. And we've called the NICU to the delivery or we've called a pediatrician or, or even just the nurse and they want that baby. They want to get that baby. They want to stimulate it. They want to give it whatever respiratory efforts, it, whatever help it needs. And so I've gotten some bizarre looks over the years from pediatric support fellows who wanted the baby immediately. So for me, that was the biggest impediment. I never really got much pushback directly from colleagues, but scants looks and concern from people who wanted the baby as soon as possible. So that was always something that was interesting. So it's very difficult, I think, to do unless our pediatric and neonatal colleagues are on board with this. And that was a big one for me. I do think we have to look at individual impediments. And I think some of the things that we do in deliveries and residency programs and things like that is we become very regimented and we sometimes overemphasize things that just aren't important. And I also think we make up reasons sometimes for why we do things. So I can remember being told as a resident that if you lifted the baby above the level of the placenta, that blood would flow out of the baby into the placenta. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> but older physicians, attending physicians were telling me that. I've heard all sorts of things like that. So we definitely have an education gap, both for obstetrics and our uh, neonatal and neonatal nursing and other support colleagues that, that are involved in that. So I think that's a big part of it. And then just that inertia and resistance to change that we talk about so much. It's clearly the right thing to do in almost every case. But of course, you and I both know that it's certainly not the normal thing that's done. Yeah. So let's, let's break those down for a little bit. Let's deal with my side of the delivery room first. Yeah. So when you have that pediatrician, neonatologist, neonatal nurse who wants that baby immediately, and you as the obstetric provider know, hey, I can actually do what everybody recommends and what Cochrane says to do and what all the evidence says to do by holding this baby here for 60 more seconds and this baby looks fine and meets all the criteria. How should the obstetric provider deal with that situation? Well, my main advice would be to have this discussion with folks before it happens. But definitely, if this is something new that you're implementing into practice, it's something that folks need education on and discussion so that they don't think that something bizarre is going on and make a scene in particular in front of the parents. It's just a question of sitting down with colleagues and having a discussion, seeing where there's knowledge gaps, doing that formally. I'm glad that you mentioned the NRP guidelines because those changed actually this year. And one of the four questions we're supposed to ask going into the delivery room is what is the cord management plan? And so everybody that's listening to this, one of the things that they need to be prepared to say is our cord management plan for at least 60 seconds of optimal cord management. Unless, again, there's a very unusual reason why that's not going to happen. Exactly. Let's talk about facilities, too, because one of the things certainly TIPQC wants to be involved in and help target are our systems and our processes and facilities and being able to plan the best situation, the best circumstance 
or the facilities to help support something that has evidence-based medicine behind it? How, how do we help these facilities? From my perspective, I think uh, other than that education component and instruction, which involves the whole nursing team, involves everybody. But from my perspective, the biggest just pragmatic things are dealing with neonatal hypothermia. So we need to, at a vaginal delivery where we have baby warmers in the room, it's an easy thing to have some blankets over there, get them warm, have them ready, put them on top of the mother, use skin to skin if you can. We can keep babies warm fairly easily at the time of vaginal delivery using warm blankets and things. I think for our preemies, especially our very small preemies, the plastic bags, those need to be available for management of hypothermia. It's harder maybe at cesarean. And again, this the biggest impediment for a lot of folks in my experience is two things. One is a lot of people are doing already what they believe to be optimal cord management and that they've already implemented institutionally 30 seconds in accordance with what ACOG and the AAP has said. So one of the educational barriers and one of the things that we're trying to address with this project is getting those 30 second folks up to 60. But hopefully that's an easy step. But beyond that, for obstetricians, I do think the biggest thing left is what do we do at cesarean? And how do we keep the baby warm at cesarean? And and again, how do we manage blood loss and things like that if there are arterial pumpers that we're worried about. So again, warm sterile blankets may be an institutional request, things like that to manage hypothermia in the OR. Yeah, what about parents? I'm sure there's, I hope there's some parents listening today, some maybe mothers or mothers-to-be, and they're saying, hey, this sounds like it's something I would like my provider to do when I deliver my baby. I would like my baby to get the benefit of all that extra blood, the extra iron, the, the easier transition to extra uterine life that we as neonatal providers get really excited about when that happens nice and, and easily and I don't have to step in and do stuff. What would you say to the, the parents that are listening? Do they need to have this conversation with their, with their obstetrician? They may. Thinking about OBGYN podcast, we recently did an episode about birth plans. And one of the things Antonia and I talked about was the different things that folks put on there. And most of the time, they're things that we already do. And it's this awkward thing. But boy, people will bring in birth plans to me and they'll ask about delayed cord clamping because they read about it on the internet. And I'm like, congratulations, I've been doing it for 13 years. This this is what I've always done or almost always done. So yeah, I think the parents do have a role in that. So um, asking about it is certainly going to encourage the obstetrician to think about it, particularly again at cesareans. And asking about it in most cases is going to make sure that it gets done. I'm never offended when someone asks me if I do what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm and glad that I have educated parents, moms and dads who've read about this stuff and are trying to do what's best for their children. So I would encourage folks to discuss this actively with their obstetrician. If they say, yes, we do that, then that's the end of the conversation. If they don't, I think that's harder. And I think that they just people have to advocate for themselves a little bit. And they can send their obstetrician our way and we can help educate a little bit. But it, but just knowing that it is the professional society guidelines, that a parent can go in armed with that. This isn't some bizarre or weird request. Yeah. Wow, this has been great, Howard. This is some fantastic information. I hope both our uh, obstetric providers and, and parents have, have been listening to. Surely there is something, though, I've not asked you that, that you want to share with our audience. If, is there been a question that you wish I would have asked? I think the only other thing that I would bring up, because I've been through this long enough to go 
and pro and con on uh, cord milking. So I think the only thing I might bring up is just cord milking. So definitely for a while with cesareans or years ago, there was data that showed that various strategies at cord milking, three or four tugs, things like that, could transfer that blood and obviously do it quicker for a baby you were worried about. And so I do think a lot of folks, when they feel like that... They want to get this baby over to the pediatrician as soon as possible, have been in a habit now of cord milking, but we're not really advocating that. There's a 2019 study, and you may go into the next episode when you have an anatologist on to discuss this, but in 2019, there was a study where early preterm infants, now these were very low birth weight, 23 to 27 week babies, but they actually stopped the study early because they were seeing a significantly higher rate of interventricular hemorrhage with that delayed cord clamping. And so we definitely are not recommending that that occur probably in babies less than 32 weeks. Now, there, there may be benefit beyond that, but we don't really have clear data saying that the same benefits that exist for this exist for that. And part of that may be, if you remember, the physiologic issue that happens when the baby takes its first few breaths and allows for the optimal amount of blood to be transferred. So sometimes in those situations where you're milking, the baby hasn't even taken those breaths yet. So you may not get the full benefit of that blood. We don't have an agreement about how long it should last, how many milks you should do. So I I think it would be the other thing for my obstetrician colleagues is cord milking is not an alternative to optimal cord management here. Yeah. So that 2019 study, the author of that study will actually be with us in a, in a couple of weeks. Well, there you go. Discuss this from the neonatology side. Perfect. Uh, that is Dr. Anoop Katheria. And Anoop will actually be a guest speaker at the TIPQC annual conference in March of 2022. When this project is rolled out, so I want to encourage everybody, especially if you're a provider, to make plans to join us on March 7th and March 8th for this meeting and for this project rollout. If you are a Tennessee hospital or an administrator at a hospital or an obstetrician at a hospital or an neonatologist at a hospital, I want to encourage you to talk to your facility about participating in this project. This is going to be a very easy project to do. It's, it's what we've been calling low-hanging fruit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and for the benefit that's associated with this for the babies, it's huge. Almost but, zero cost of implementation. It's just a question of changing a couple of minutes of your daily routine, perhaps, for the average person to have a really profound impact, particularly for our babies most in need. Yeah, and we'll be talking about that more with Dr. Katheria when he joins us in the next episode. It's going to be fascinating. We'll journey into the benefits for term babies and preterm babies, and we'll convince you further of why you need to plan on doing optimal cord management into your practice. Howard, as we wrap this up, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to make sure all of the resources that you have mentioned, your howardisms.com, your podcast, your books are provided to our listeners in the show links. But I've got one final question for you. Let's say there's a giant billboard and you get to put whatever you want on this giant billboard for free. You can put whatever you want on it. And every day there's going to be thousands of people driving by it. Maybe this is in front of all the hospitals in the state of Tennessee or in the middle of New York City somewhere. What would you put on this billboard? What would you want people to know and be reminded of? Boy, these are some existential questions. Uh, It is. I'm I'm, I'm a deep thinker. Yeah. 
Well, I tell you, I think a lot about that 17 year thing and it, and it dumbfounds me every day when when I see my colleagues not follow straightforward guidelines, whether that be labor management guidelines or pap smear guidelines or optimal cord management guidelines, et cetera. So uh, one of my personal mottos is actually the inscription on the tombstone of Lawson Tate. Lawson Tate is considered by many people to be the father of modern gynecology. In the 19th century, he did lots of extraordinary things. He saved the first woman through surgery from ectopic pregnancy death after failing a few times, of course. Uh, a lot of firsts for Lawson Tate and really the founder of modern gynecologic surgery. Uh, uh, aseptic technique is something he created. So Lawson Tate's tombstone, his motto, his personal motto says, do the next thing. So I used to have a blog called that years ago when I was a long time ago, because that's always been something I think about. And that doesn't mean to do things ahead of the evidence or anything like that. One of the wonderful things about medicine and the history of medicine is we're in a continuous progression of evidence that emerges and we change our practices. And Lawson Tate always lived his life at the forefront of that, looking for how to make the lives of women and children better. And that was his motto. So do the next thing. Look for what's there. Look for the evidence and follow it. Yeah. And with that, we will leave you with the motto of do the next thing. Until next time, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.